Genesis chapter 1, if you would turn there. Now, I promised you we wouldn't go one verse at a time, but we are back in Genesis 1, but for a very short period of time. Quickly, a little announcement from me. Um, We are having online, you can go online and see a little panel discussion on what worship is. Uh, Some of us on staff and some of the worship team put this together uh, to discuss what is worship. We talk about it a lot, but what actually is it? It's right online. If you go to restandbible.org, it's right there on the front page. And so if you're interested, go to that. It's going to be once a week for about five minutes, a little chat. So we're in Genesis chapter one. I want to go back and say this, particularly if you were not here last week. I would encourage you strongly to go listen or watch the message from last week because it gives you an understanding as to how we're going to go through this book of Genesis. We're going to look at it through the lens of people that lived 4,000 years ago. It's important to know how people would see it then, how they would understand. What did God want them to know? One of the things we started with last week was this. We started with this idea of a door that says, Welcome to the world of the unknown. And that door is an invitation to step in to what the scriptures teach that your five human senses cannot teach you, that education cannot teach you, that science cannot teach you, that technology cannot teach you, that nothing in this world can possibly teach you. Because if those things could teach you that, God wouldn't need to reveal them to us. So God is interested in revealing to us things that we could otherwise have no knowledge of. So we covered a lot of that last week. We also talked about myths about people in the world that think they know what we believe as Christians. And I wanted to dispel some of those myths, so we walked through some of that. So it's important that you listen to the first message, because it sort of jumpstarts how we even get into this whole discussion that's before us. So today, we have, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Lord willing. What I've done is I've gone through those two chapters, and I've picked out four subject matters that are revealed to us to allow us to step into the world of the unknown that the world is not going to teach you, okay? Now, if you happen to be a person, maybe you've been coming for a while, you're kind of checking out Christianity or a Bible church, maybe this is your first Sunday and you haven't had too much of this explained to you, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself to be a person who believes the Bible or a follower of Christ, this is going to be a good series for you, all right? I would just encourage you even if you aren't here, to go look up and online. All of our messages are online. And follow along and try to be as open-minded as you can. Because today, we're going to step back into the world of the unknown, and it is going to be very, very counter to what the world teaches. All right, Very, very counter to that. And it's important that that we grasp this. So what we believe about these opening chapters of Genesis sets a stage for our worldview. You either have a secular worldview based on everything that you can understand through your five human senses, or you have a biblical worldview, those things that you can understand that God has revealed to you that man knows nothing about. And that's why God has revealed these things to us. So today, the four subject matters we're going to be looking at are very, very important. And we're also going to be looking at why the enemy, why Satan, would want to distort all four of these areas. His objective would clearly be, I'm going to distort this. This is what God says. I'm going to distort it, all right? And we can see the distortion all throughout life. We're going to walk through that in these four areas. But let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 4. We read these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Might as well read verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, in the evening and the morning were the first day. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word, we are stepping into the world of the unknown. And I pray today that you would open our eyes, that we'd behold wondrous things out of this unknown world, things that we could never know if you were not so gracious as to reveal them to us. So we thank you for what you're going to accomplish today. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope that I don't come across as um, arrogant or Mr. Know-it-all today, but I feel very strongly about what I'm going to say. Very, 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 very strongly about what I'm going to say. So it might come across that way. So I'll ask forgiveness in advance, all right, in case I come across like a little overly pushy. Here we go. The first subject matter is the subject of evolution versus creation, all right? That is a huge issue. It's been a huge issue ever since the Scopes trial. It's been a huge issue ever since Darwin. All the different, you know, things that have taken place over the years, scientists battling all these things out, various disciplines arguing over it back and forth. I am not going to get into the subject matter of the age of the earth. That would take too much time to get into, you know, many Many Christians believe the earth is about 6,000 years old. Many believe it's 4.6 billion years old. There's all kinds of arguments and all that. That is not the intent, I don't believe, of Genesis 1 to give us a clear answer on that. Even though I happen to be a young earth guy, I don't think that's the big issue here. I mean, he's writing to people that lived 4,000 years ago. They weren't terribly interested in how old the earth was, all right? But I do want to talk about the subject matter of evolution and creation. Again, we could go on for a very long period of time on this, but we're just knocking off one thing at a time in these first two chapters. Satan is the author of death, according to Jesus in John 8. He says that he is a liar and the father of it. He was a murderer from the beginning. There are reasons for why the enemy would want people to understand an evolutionary theory or concept or a model for how life began and, and what is moving forward. Keep this in mind, all accounts of how man came into this world or how the world began, all accounts sound absolutely stupid depending on which side is presenting it. If you're a strong evolutionist, here's how you might present the creationist side. You might say to people, do you realize those creationists actually believe that God one day just spoke and everything came into being. And then one day he took the dust of the ground and he made a man named Adam. And he pulled a rib out of his side and he made a woman named Eve. And then there was this talking serpent that came in and the whole earth became filled with sin and that's how everything happened. Ha, 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 ha. All right? On the other side, I could say, you mean to tell me there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was something. And that something over a long period of time blew up and then cooled down. And then over a long period of time, it formed these little crystals on a rock. 
And then over a long period of time, those crystals lined up all of its amino acids and proteins in a perfect uh, sequence. And then out of that came this cell. And this cell just happened to have the ability to divide. And now we have millions of different types of things. Ha, 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 ha. All right? Both sides appear absolutely stupid. All right? Because how else are you going to explain it? You know, unless you were there, you have no way of explaining this thing. Okay? So we have this huge battle that, that just rages through the years. But here are some of the reasons why I believe that the enemy would want you to believe in evolution. Because the enemy is the father of lies. He's the father of, of, of death. He, he's a murderer from the very, very beginning. So let's take a look at some things. Here is the fruit that is born out of an evolutionary mindset. Hitler coming along and deciding that blacks and Jews are inferior. It created tremendous racism and continues to create racism. We have many people today that think that their particular race is the superior race. We see this over and over again. It continues to cause massive problems. It also causes the whole issue of looking at abortion as a child just being a blob of tissues. There are even some people that believe today that once the child comes out, if you don't like the, the, the way the child looks, that within a month you ought to be able to remove the child from this world. That's taught at Princeton by a very big ethicist, a guy up there. And this is being bought into. Euthanasia, let's just wipe out older people. They're just a, a drag on society. It causes atheism. It causes moral relativism. There is no morality. There is no God. Everything just came about over time and chance for a long, long period of time. So that is, a, that is the fruit of an evolutionary mindset. But why do people believe it? And this is where we have to be very careful. I told you last week, I'm all in favor of science. The Bible's in favor of science. The Bible tells us to actually study science. It says, go to the earth and learn of its ways. Go to the fish of the seas and learn of their ways. God commands man to learn science. Why? Because science is absolute truth. It's observable, it's reproducible, and it's measurable. That's what science is. The Bible is absolute truth, therefore the Bible and science get along just fine. Interpretations of the Bible and interpretations of the scientific method do not always agree. That's where the contradiction comes in. But when you put both together, both absolute truths, they get along just fine. So why would anybody believe in evolution? What's the point? How would you ever come to that agreement? Well, if you were to grab the average person on the street or even the average scientist that, that does not study the fossil records and those kind of things, what you would hear the average person say is, well, the fossil record. Because once somebody uses the term science, well, scientific studies show, or science says, then people in society buy it hook, line, and sinker, even though science may not say that at all. So many people would say, well, the, the, the fossil record uh, lays that out very, very clearly. The high priest of evolution, probably considered to be maybe the greatest paleontologist up to certainly today, was a man by the name of Stephen Jay Gould. He died about eight or ten years ago. Brilliant, brilliant paleontologist. He was an atheist. Harvard guy. And here I'm going to quote to you what he said. He said, and I quote, The greatest embarrassment to the evolutionary model is the lack of fossil evidence. End of quote. This is Jay Gould, leading guy. He got so fed up 
that he came up with a totally different view as to how evolution worked. Just crazy view. <laughs> a lot of his people thought he lost his mind. I don't have time to even get into it. It's called punctuated equilibrium, very complex issue. At any rate, the point is, is that Gould made this statement. And I've probably told you this story before, but I was on a plane flying to Austria about 15, 18 years ago, and I'm sitting next to a graduate from Harvard who is a nuclear physicist, and I couldn't wait to get into a discussion about spiritual matters. So I asked him to explain to me, uh, I said, you're a physicist, I said, incredible, you know, you've got your doctorate from Harvard. I said, could you ex please explain to me uh, Einstein's theory of relativity in layman's terms? I'm not real smart, that kind of stuff, just explain. So he breaks out this legal pad and he's showing me all these things, and I'm sort of nodding like I understand. I have no idea what he's talking about. Anyway, so we got into a discussion about how the world began and everything, and I said, well, I, I, here's what I believe, and I told him, and he said, but you have a problem. He said, the problem that you have is evolution proves that Genesis is wrong. And he was Jewish, and he really held pretty strongly to the Old Testament. He had a real problem with that. And I said, well, where does evolution prove that Genesis is wrong? With the fossil record. I said, where in the fossil record? He said, well, it's all the fossils, all the fossils, they tell the whole story. I said, well, give me an example of a fossil that's, that's a, a missing link. He said, well, there are thousands of them. I said, well, give me an example of one. He said, well, they're everywhere. I said, give me an example of one. <laughs> this went on for a while, and eventually I said, shame on you. Now, I can say that because we're halfway over the Atlantic, and uh, <laughs> we'd become very good friends by then. And so I, I, said, I said, you're a scientist, and you're telling me that the fossil record proves it. And then I quoted Gould, Stephen Jay Gould. And he said, I had never heard that before. I didn't know. I said, well, now you know. The fossil record doesn't say anything. It's not just a missing link. The whole chain's gone. Everything. But the average person out there, including many scientists who have science in knowledge in oceanography or physics or gravitational forces, but don't know about paleontology, buy into that. And they'll tell other people, and everybody thinks it must be true. So it's very easy to believe all kinds of myths and things that are stated out there when the average person simply doesn't know. It's, just, it's not stupidity, it's just simply ignorance on a person's part. So here's a perfect example. Now let me give you several reasons why I don't believe in evolution. I'm just going to give you several. Things that I would call, you know, when you have a, a mousetrap, a little mousetrap, if, if you don't have all parts of that mousetrap, if you don't have the spring, if you don't have the lever that flips over, if you don't have the wooden board that fits, if you don't have all of it, it doesn't work. No organism can possibly work unless it has everything at the moment it's created or the moment that it evolves. It can't take millions of years for something to take place. So I'll give you an example of, of, of several things. Take, for example, the mosquito. Now, a mosquito has six parts to that little proboscis, that little drill that goes in, into your skin. And one of those happens to be that if you draw up blood, blood coagulates, it hardens. So here a mosquito would have a stopped up nose immediately, and that'd be the end of the mosquito. And aren't you, don't you wish that that happened, but it didn't. All right, all right. Uh, a mosquito has a very, very complex chemical that's an anticoagulant that it injects into your, into your skin, into the bloodstream, to keep it from coagulating. It couldn't have waited a million years for that to happen. It would have died off a long time ago. Here's something else that a mosquito has. A mosquito has a little pickup in that probe that goes in that picks up electrical signals. So when you see a mosquito on your arm, you hear it buzzing, all of a sudden you don't hear the buzz, that means it's drilling. 
And all of a sudden, you look down, you see it, and you say, I'm going to swat that mosquito, that electrical signal that goes to your arm. He picks up, and he says, I'm out of here. You swat, hit yourself in the arm, he's gone laughing all the way home, all right? <laughs> he can't wait millions of years for that to happen. How about the, uh, how about the archer fish? Here's an archer fish. An archer fish looks up and sees a bug sitting on a, you know, on a twig, and it spits, and it knocks the bug down, and the bug falls in the water, and it comes up and eats the bug. There's only a slight problem here. When light hits the water, there's a refraction angle, something like 45 degrees. So what he's looking at is not where the bug is. The bug's really up here. So he's spitting for millions of years this way and getting absolutely nothing. So he dies off. He just happens to have a lens that corrects for the 45-degree refraction. It just happened over a long period of time. Couldn't have happened over a long period of time. He needs it instantly. How about the, uh, how about, uh, the giraffe? When a giraffe bends down to get water, a massive amount of blood flows to its head. If it, if it didn't have a particular valve, it would blow its brains out the first time it bent over. That'd be the end of the giraffe, instantly. But it has a particular valve that shuts all that off. Every single organism, every animal has so many complex things that must be there at the moment that it comes into existence. It can't wait for millions of years. The spider, so incredibly complex. Have you ever looked outside sometimes and seen a, a spider web that grows a long, long distance, maybe from one tree to another? You think, How in the world that happened? There are spiders, they spit out their webs during, uh, when there's a light breeze, and it blows it all the way over, connects it to another tree, then he goes out and he forms his, his, his little web there. The silk that comes out of that spider is so complex, you can't even begin to imagine. They're studying it. They'll never come to the end of, of understanding how the spider came about and all those things. Because if it didn't have the ability to make a web, it dies out immediately, all right? That's true with every single thing that is out there. But I think people just somehow think it just sort of happened, and there's, I know there's a lot of clever little explanations. There really are no explanations. Here's another one. Life should be getting better, and I've already talked on this. Diseases as, as the, as the you know, natural selection and so on, and there is a certain amount of natural selection, but by now, all the people that have had all kinds of diseases would have died off. They wouldn't have passed on those genes and the DNA to the next generation. We ought to be the strongest people that ever lived. We ought to be powerful and mighty and stronger and getting along more. Ask any doctor in this congregation, if diseases are decreasing or increasing, they are off the charts. And now, even in the secular world, they're beginning to believe that we are genetically getting weaker and weaker and thus passing on a greater weakness to the next generation, and it's compounding, which is why there's far more autism, why there's far more depression, why there's far more anxiety attacks, why there are far more people on depression medication, why all these things are compounding far more than they were in the past. We're going downhill. We are not going uphill. But the big argument, of course, is always, but we're living longer. Living longer is mixing apples and oranges. Living longer is not the issue. And by the way, the recent studies show that now life expectancy is starting to drop. I don't have time to get into all that. But again, life should be getting better. It is not. Every single negative thing is on the increase. It is on the increase. Infinite complexity is another thing that, that certainly gets my, my attention. If evolution is true, evolution is finite. It had a finite period of time when it started. 
If God created something, he would create it with infinite complexity. So what do we see? Do we actually see that, that we're getting more and more information? We started out with almost nothing, but now we're getting to a point where we're starting to close in. Now we're getting to a point where we're starting to be able to explain everything. We're almost there. We can explain the human cell and everything and so on. I was down in, in Nashville uh, about three years ago, and I met a, a um, cellular biologist and got his doctorate. And he said, you know, there was a time when if you had a, wanted to get a, a, a doctorate in studying the cell, there were about 15 or 20 different disciplines within the cell, the protein or the amino acids or the electrical signals or whatever. And he said, now there are 750-some different disciplines on the human cell. That was four years ago. There are probably over 1,000 now. And in 10 years, there'll be 20,000. Because every time they find out a new thing, due to more high-powered microscopes and studies in chemistry and so on, they begin to realize they open up a whole new set of, of doors to go through. And every time you go through those doors, there's another whole set of doors there. And, and he actually said to me, he said, I think God took the human cell, threw it to the earth and said, figure that out, buddy. And, and uh, that's, I, think, I think that's kind of where we are. Now, I'm gonna, this, is not, this is not my tagline, but I guess it could be. We are not closing in on final answers, but opening up endless doors to more questions. We're not closing in on anything in any area. Everything is being seen as more and more complex. In other words, everything is being seen as infinite. That points to a creator, not evolution. Not evolution at all. And besides that, Jesus said that in the beginning, God made them male and female. He goes all the way back and he speaks about creation very, very clearly out of Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. So the first subject matter we find is the subject matter of evolution. The second one is the idea of the image of God. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, speaking probably of the Trinity, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, this is a big. The idea of being created in the image and likeness of God. The irony is, God says, don't make any images of God. He tells us not, not to don't make any images, don't make any idols out of God. But God makes an image of himself out of us. He says, you are made in the image and likeness of God, meaning we have a mind, a will, and emotion. But mainly the context is this, that God has dominion over everything he's created and he wants man to have dominion. The idea of being made in the image and likeness of God is that we are, are, are co-regents. We are, we are able to have dominion in this world. And, and to, and to uh, deal with the fish and the livestock and everything else and to till the ground and take care of it. This is all prior to the fall, Lord willing, which we will look at, Lord willing, next week. And here's the issue. Here's the issue. If I don't see myself as created in the image and likeness of God, if I don't step into the world of the unknown and I stay back here on this side of the door, what am I to think of myself? that I just evolved over a period of time, that I'm just an animal? What am I to think of myself? So you see how all this sort of flows together. Was I made 
fearfully and wonderfully made, as Psalm 139 says, was I created in the image and likeness of a sovereign God, or am I the product of time and chance? What is it? That determines a tremendous, to a tremendous degree, as to how you feel about yourself. All right? If you see yourself as created in the image and likeness of God, that is a total difference than seeing yourself as simply having evolved. Now, imagine what the enemy is going to want to do. The enemy is going to want to create what the world calls self-esteem. You need to have a self, high self-esteem, a good self-image. All right, That's what the enemy wants. And you're probably thinking, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. To have a good self-image, keep in mind, self is the problem. Self is fallen. Self is broken. Self is sinful. Self is filled with bitterness and anger and hurt. You don't want to have a good self-image. You want to have a good image as to who you are in the person of Christ. Not a good self-image, which is why self-help books don't work. Self-image and self-help books are self-defeating. All right? It doesn't work. That doesn't mean you shouldn't tell your children to be confident in being able to play the piano or sports, whatever. But the problem is this. A self-image is based on what the world decides what a good self-image should be. What's the model? Hollywood. How many of you look, look like somebody from Hollywood other than me? I mean, how many of you look like that, all right? <laughs> Hardly anybody. Plus, back they're all brushed up and everything else. And then when they show up at a gala event and some woman who spent $20,000 on a designer dress sees another woman with the same designer dress, all Hollywood goes crazy and there's buzz and fighting and arguing over everything. What happens to the self-image? It plummets right down to the bottom. Because that's not what the image was. This is why God at the very, very beginning says, I want you to understand these things. I want you to step into the world of the unknown. You have been created in the image and likeness of God. What did Paul say? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But the life that I live, I now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How did Paul see himself? He saw himself as in Christ. Paul didn't worry about his looks or his athletic ability or his intelligence. He saw himself as in Christ. Consider what that does when you see yourself as forgiven, when you see yourself as righteous as God himself because that righteousness is given to you as a gift. You see yourself as being made in the image and likeness of God. You see yourself as being fearfully and wonderfully made, no matter whether you're a track star or whether you're handsome or what doesn't make any difference. God doesn't have some sort of a standard. There's no, there no, you know, a beauty pageant. There's no Miss America but the world has that. And every time you look at that, your self-image is going to go right down the tubes. You can't help but have it. All of us battle with it, even if we're Christians. But the point is, the scriptures are opening up the world of the unknown. And it's opening up prior to the fall to tell us the story of what happens when the fall took place and why the world is in the mess that it's in. So comparison is always going to be the problem. And people are always going to compare themselves with somebody that's better, smarter, faster, more money, whatever, ever, and self-image doesn't work. Again, you can feel good about who you are in Christ. You can feel good that God has given you certain abilities and talents. You can rely upon those. You can be confident in those. And you can thank God for those. I, I, I remember, I guess it was the guy that won, the, won last week the Alabama game. 18-year-old quarterback. 
And he said, I just want one thing, that God gets the glory. That God, he says, not about me. That God would receive the glory. That's all there is to it. And look what that does to that young man, 18, 19 years old. He's, he doesn't need a self-image. He's got a God image. He understands who he is in Christ. And it changes everything. It changes everything. So make sure we understand what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Number three, look if you would at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Aren't you glad we're in chapter 2? Here we go. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now we're talking about a Sabbath rest. What do you think the enemy would love to do? Keep you from resting. Literally, it doesn't mean that God was tired and he had to take a nap. It means he ceased from his work. He was setting a pattern for people to take a day off. It became part of the, of, of the law for, for Israel. A Sabbath rest. What does the enemy do? He creates a technology, usually hooked to your belt uh, or someplace, that is constantly telling you, don't even think of resting. Don't think of resting for one second. I'm going to keep you moving all the time. I'm going to have you so stressed out that you're not, even, you're not going to know which end is up. And when you go on vacation, it's going to be tethered there because your boss is going to say, I know you're on vacation, but we have a major project we're working on, and yeah, it's okay to go to the beach for about half an hour, but you need to get back there, and your whole vacation is shot, and then your wife or your husband is mad at you, and then there's a fight, and there's all... That's why you need to come to the marriage conference. All right, anyway, so all these things unfold, and it isn't hard to see these. Even, even the secular world is discovering it. A young guy came out on... He's traveling all over the country. I think he used to work for Google. And he said, I begin to realize... I was trying to steal every moment of the day. I was, I was looking at Netflix and how they wanted every single second of my time. All these different media outlets want, every, they're competing for every single second of your day. They want to know where you shop, what you order, every, they're constantly having up things on your phone to remind you of what you need to get and so on. You can't get away from it. Because the iPhone and technology is going to compete for your Sabbath rest. Now, my Sabbath is Monday. In the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, the only commandment in the New Testament that is not repeated, of, there are nine that are repeated in the New Testament, the only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath. I'm talking about keeping holy the Sabbath. But the principle is there. Because I think in the New Testament, since we're not under the law, we're under grace, the principle of taking a day off somewhere along the line Mine is Monday. It would be very hard for me to call this a day of rest, all right? And so, mine is pretty much Monday. I try, I try, I'm not real good at it, not to take on any appointments, but I have two bosses, my wife and Cheryl Hurley, that get mad at me whenever I accept something on my day off. So I, so I become guilty. I, I get sucked into all these different things because the phone is telling me, you need to stay in touch with everything that's going on in the world. You need to be doing all these kind of things. And it robs me of Sabbath rest. We know that rest is healthy. 
We know that fasting is healthy. We know that all kinds of these things are healthy. So what does the enemy do? He is going to try to confuse every single thing that God has revealed in the very early stages of Genesis. There was a pastor years ago who said, why should I take a day of rest since Satan never takes a day of rest? And Warren Wiersbe, an old, old pastor, said, since when is Satan our example? (laughs) He said, take a day off. And this pastor that said that had a nervous breakdown and years later confessed that he should not have looked at it that way, that Satan didn't take a day off. So keep in mind, you need rest. Try to set it aside. Try to be disciplined to set that time aside because you know full well that all of the technology today is calling every second of your life. It's managing your life. It's telling you what you need to be doing or not doing and so on. And people are not resting. They're not taking the time to get that rest. The last thing, and perhaps the most complex, is found in Genesis 2, 7 through 9, and then 20 through 25. 2, 7 through 9. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now look at verses 20 through 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from his rib he had taken out of the man and brought it to man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. The last one, marriage. What do you think the enemy wants to do with a very clear, couldn't be any clearer, that a man, gender, would leave his father, gender, and mother, gender, and cleave to his wife, gender, and the two of them would become one flesh. Jesus says in Matthew 19, when he is challenged on the subject of divorce, he says, haven't you read that in the beginning, God made them male, and he quotes this very thing. Because God wants it so emphatically clear what the Old Testament says about marriage and what the New Testament says about marriage, he wants it as clear as it can possibly, possibly be. So the Supreme Court came along a couple of years ago and said, we don't like that definition. And now the chips have fallen. And now polygamy is is now going to be pushed. It's already starting. Bestiality is coming up. And now there are over 50 different gender identities. I know this is a tense issue. I spoke on it two years ago in January called The Gospel and Sexuality. I am not down on gay people. I'm not down on transgenders. I don't dislike anybody because everybody is broken sexually. Everybody is broken in every single area, emotionally, everything. We live in a broken world. But God does have order to his world. He says things to heterosexuals. He says things to to, to gay people. And he says, this is the order. 
and both, on both sides, break it often, all right? This isn't about one group of people, but it is to say, this is what marriage is. And as soon as the enemy comes along and says, no, it isn't, the world falls into all kinds of confusion. Fifty different gender identities. Fifty. There used to be two, male and female. Now there's 50. Most people don't even know what they are. There's, and they've all been invented in the last few years. Just invented. Just makeup. And this burdens me. Because if the church doesn't have a biblical worldview, if it doesn't step into the world of the unknown, how's it going to live? How's the church going to survive if it caves on every single issue and doesn't take a strong stand on these issues? Not in a hateful way, not in a mean-spirited way, but in a loving and kind way to say, this is what God has ordained. This is it. But we have so much confusion out there right now. There's moral confusion. There's uh, gender identity confusion. There's confusion on right and wrong. There's relative truth. All these things are every single place you can possibly turn today due to the violation of what Genesis 1 and 2 says about these four different subjects. Now, with all that said, I want you to turn to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of my favorite portions of the Bible. And it deals, the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians deal with the subject matter of the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. All right, The wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, I'd like you to look down at verses 18 and 20. And here's what you read. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but on us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. That comes out of Isaiah. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Now, his point here is that God has made foolish the wisdom of of the world. What God does is, is that God creates a frustration. God throws a monkey wrench into, into scientific inquiry when people try to figure things out that cannot be figured out, and you have, have to step into the world of the unknown. And it's very, very frustrating when you keep discovering that things are more and more complex than you ever thought, and you're probably never going to run out of figuring out all the complexity. That's frustrating. Because man in his own nature sees himself as God. Man in his own way sees himself as being supreme with all wisdom. And God says, where's the wise? Where's the scholar? Where is he? I'm going to frustrate the daylights out of this world. Because I love you and I want you to come to me. Now, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Look down, if you would, at verses 18 and 19. I love this little section here. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their own 
craftiness. Meaning he takes the intelligence of man and he catches them in that intelligence. And he says, explain this. You're an evolutionist? Explain this. Explain that. I will frustrate you and frustrate you and frustrate you. And if you think you understand this, explain this. Because I'm going to throw another monkey wrench in there that is just going to blow your mind. And it's going to continue to point to the fact that I am the sovereign creator of this world. I'm in control of all things and you desperately need me. Desperately need me. And in your arrogance, you're going to continue to suppress the truth because of your unrighteousness. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You're going to keep me, you're going to push me away, but I'm going to keep frustrating you. I'm going to keep frustrating you. That way, on the day of judgment, you will not be able to say you did not know. You will not be able to say that. And this is a way that God wants to humble people. He wants to humble us. I saw a guy the other day on one of these TED Talks. Uh, they're very interesting. They're pretty much humanistic, but they're very interesting talks. Some are really great. They're just phenomenal things. I went on and watched one on the spider one time and the complexity of the spider web and everything. But this guy got up and he, he talked about, the, the subject was, why is there a universe rather than not? Or why do things exist rather than not exist? And it was this, it was, I, I listened for 18 minutes and I thought, does this guy have a clue what he just got finished saying? The people all stood up and they were applauding. I wanted to climb through the screen and, and show up somehow on the stage and say, excuse me, folks, I know you're highly intelligent, you love these kind of things. Let me ask you a question. What did he just say? You know full well, you don't have a clue what he said. He doesn't have a clue with what he said. It was one of these weird, philosophical, scientific, it was drivel. It was absolute, total nonsense. It was from this side of the door. And it made no sense. Everyone there knew it made no sense, but it sounded great. Oh, it sounded great. We don't really need God. Science has proven this and this and this. I'm thinking, no, science hasn't proven any of those things. Don't tell me that. And people are out there buying this thing hook, line, and sinker. And I'm thinking, you people are intelligent. you got PhDs sitting out there listening to this nonsense. And the world listens to this. I want to grab this guy. Of course, I wanted to do it in love. Grab this guy. <laughs> Just what are you talking about? He didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And this kind of stuff is going on all over in college campuses and everybody's just buying into this stuff. Step on the other side of the door and listen to what biblical revelation has to say because it has something to say that is very real because God was there when he created everything. He knows what he's talking about. And he's going to continue to frustrate man as long as man refuses to humble himself and admit that God is the only sovereign ruler of this world. And until that happens... We're going to continue to live in that confusion. And the church shouldn't be living in that confusion. I want this church to be wise in understanding how you can explain things to people that think they have all these answers to life. And let them know it is a mess. It is, they know their lives are a mess. They know their self-image is a mess. They need to hear the truth. Now listen to this. Turn with me. I'm tired of hollering. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians, Colossians. I hope you're applauding Jesus. Colossians chapter 2. Look, if you would, at verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. 
I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united to love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Boy, that was this guy to the nth degree. Look down, if you would, at verse, I think it's verse 14. I have, um, let's see, is it verse 14? Anyway, he, he goes on, he says, it's, it's a little bit further down, where he talks about, um, I can't remember, but I can remember how it's stated. It says, it says that, that when we are not yielded to the lordship of Christ, we will fall after deceptive beliefs. We will fall after different types of philosophies. And that's what all these things are. They are philosophies. I beg of you, particularly if you're young, you're getting ready to head off to college, whatever it is, listen and think. Think. Don't let somebody just lead you down this path. Because all of this eventually points to the one that in him all wisdom and all knowledge are in this person, Christ. All wisdom, all knowledge. Why? Because he is the creator of all things, Jesus. So if you happen to be visiting, and if I came across a little harsh, I care for your soul. I care for your soul. I care that you do not buy into all this nonsense out there and listen to the gospel message, the living word of God, that says you're in a hopeless state you have no self-image. You have nothing going for you at all. You have no hope in the next world until you come to the realization that you're a sinner and so am I. And Christ died and paid the penalty for your sin and rose again the third day to show that he had victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And when you come to him and call upon him and him alone for your salvation, putting aside all of your religion and all of your good works and your good deeds and trust only in Christ and Christ alone, you'll be taken out of the kingdom of God Darkness, which is on this side of the door, and you'll step into the kingdom of God's dear Son, the kingdom of light. And you'll then understand why the world is in the confusion that it's in. You'll understand how the world came to be. You'll understand what image looks like. You'll understand what marriage is. You'll understand all kinds of things that are, that are and how you need to rest. All these things are borne out in this book. Because this book is a book of revelation. And revelation is what God wants man to know that man could otherwise not know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord, to share uh, my heart's passion and desires that people would not buy in to the foolishness of this world. We are to love this world. You so love the world. We love the world. We love the people of the world. We care that they know the truth, but to not to buy into the philosophies of this world. So, Father, I pray that you would draw people to yourself today. If Should there be one or five or ten that do not know you, that today would be the day. In the quietness of their heart, they might say something like this, Lord Jesus, I realize today that I have believed so many lies. Today, I'm putting my hope, my faith, my confidence in Jesus Christ as my only hope, my only salvation. I believe in it. And when you do, you'll pass from death unto life. Father, thank you for these dear people that have come out today. I pray that you would continue to bless this series. And Lord, as we look into next week regarding the fall, oh, what revelation is before us there. 
And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.